Welcome to the Terry Podcast, Tales from Near and Far, read to you by Pratham Data. A Child's History of England by Charles Dickens, read to you by Pratham Data. So this is where we stand. It is early 15th century and Henry VI is on the English throne. Now he's not the smartest lad in the world and of course after his father Henry V and his famous victories it is truly a very large pair of shoes to fill. Now as he's governing Joan of Arc in 1429 really disturbs the English and the Duke of Burgundy's peace. After that when things do settle the reign doesn't keep on going very well because people have lost confidence in the king and his cousin, the Duke of York, is slowly gaining both popularity and fame on his behest. So, this is where we start. Whether the Duke knew anything of Jack Cade or not, he came over from Ireland while Jack's head was on London Bridge being secretly advised that the Queen was setting up his enemy, the Duke of Somerset, against him. He went to Westminster at the head of 4,000 men and on his knees before the King presented to him the bad state of the country and petitioned him to summon a Parliament to consider it. This the King promised. When the Parliament was summoned, the Duke of York accused the Duke of Somerset, and the Duke of Somerset accused the Duke of York, and both in and out of Parliament, the followers of each party were full of violence and hatred towards each other. At length, the Duke of York put himself at the head of a large force of his tenants and, in arms, demanded the reformation of the government. Being shut out of London, he encamped at Dartford and the royal army encamped at Blackheath. According as either side triumphed, the Duke of York was arrested or the Duke of Somerset was arrested. The trouble ended for the moment in the Duke of York renewing his oath of allegiance and going in peace to one of his own castles. Half a year afterwards, the Queen gave birth to a son, who was very ill-received by the people and not believed to be the son of the King. It shows the Duke of York to have been a moderate man, unwilling to involve England in new troubles, that he did not take advantage of the general discontent at this time, but really acted for the public good. He was made a member of the cabinet, and the king being now so much worse that he could not be carried about and shown to the people with any decency, the duke was made Lord Protector of the kingdom until the king should recover or the prince should come of age. At the time, the Duke of Somerset was committed to the tower. So, now the Duke of Somerset was down and the Duke of York was up. By the end of the year, however, the King recovered his memory and some spark of sense upon which the 
queen used her power, which recovered with him, to get the protector disgraced and her favourite released. So now, the Duke of York was down and the Duke of Somerset was up. These ducal ups and downs gradually separated the whole nation into the two parties of York and Lancaster and led to those terrible civil wars long known as the War of the Red and White Roses. Because the Red Rose was the badge of the House of Lancaster and the White Rose was the badge of the House of York. The Duke of York, joined by some other powerful noblemen of the White Rose Party and leading a small army, met the king with some small army at St Albans and demanded that the Duke of Somerset be given up. The poor king, being made to say an answer that he would sooner die, was instantly attacked. The Duke of Somerset was killed and the king himself was wounded in the neck and took refuge in the house of a poor tanner. Whereupon the Duke of York went to him, led him with great submission to the abbey and said he was very sorry for what had happened. Having now the king in his possession, he got a parliament summons and himself once more made protector, but only for a few months, for on the king getting a little better again, the queen and her party got him into their possession and disgraced the duke once more. So now the Duke of York was down again. Some of the best men in power, seeing the danger of these constant changes, tried even then to prevent the Red and the White Rose Wars. They brought about a great council in London between the two parties. The White Roses assembled in Blackfriars and the Red Roses in Whitefriars and some good priests communicated between them and made the proceedings known at evening to the king and the judges. They entered in a peaceful agreement that there should be no more quarrelling and there was a great royal procession to St Paul's in which the Queen walked arm in arm with her old enemy, the Duke of York, to show the people how comfortable they all were. This state of peace lasted half a year, when a dispute between the Earl of Warwick, one of the Duke's powerful friends, and some of the King's servants at court led to an attack upon that Earl, who was a white rose, and to a sudden breaking out of old, old animosities. So, here were greater ups and downs than ever. There were even greater ups and downs than these soon after. After various battles, the Duke of York fled to Ireland and his son, the Earl of March, to Calais, with their friends, the Earls of Salisbury and Warwick, and a parliament was held declaring them all traitors. Little the worse for this, the Earl of Warwick presently came back, landed in Kent, was joined by the Archbishop of Canterbury and other powerful noblemen and gentlemen, engaged the King's forces at Northampton, signally defeated them and took the King himself prisoner, who was found in his tent.
Warwick would have been glad, I dare say, to have taken the Queen and Prince too. But they escaped into Wales and thence into Scotland. The King was carried by the victorious force straight to London and made to call a new Parliament, which immediately declared that the Duke of York and those other noblemen were not traitors, but excellent subjects. Then, back comes the Duke of Ireland, the head of 500 horsemen, rides from London to Westminster and enters the House of Lords. There, he laid his hand upon the cloth of gold which covered the empty throne as if he had half a mind to sit down in it. But he did not. On the Archbishop of Canterbury asking him if he would visit the king who was in his palace close by, he replied, I know no one in this country, my lord, who ought not to visit me. And none of the lords present spoke a single word. So the Duke went out as he had come in, established himself royally in the King's palace, and six days afterwards sent into the Lords a formal statement of his claim to the throne. The Lords went to the King on this momentous subject, and after a great deal of discussion in which the judges and the other law officers were free to give an opinion on either side, the question was compromised. It was agreed that the present king should retain the crown for his life and that it should then pass to the Duke of York and his heirs. But the resolute queen, determined on asserting her son's right, would hear of no such thing. She came from Scotland to the north of England, where several powerful lords armed in her cause. The Duke of York, for his part, set up with some 5,000 men, a little time before Christmas Day, 1,460, to give her battle. He lodged at Sandal Castle, near Wakefields, and the Red Roses defied him to come out on Wakefield Green and fight them then and there. His general said he had best wait until his gallant son, the Earl of March came up with his power, but he was determined to accept the challenge. He did so in an evil hour. He was hotly pressed on all sides. Two thousand of his men lay dead on Wakefield Green, and he himself was taken prisoner. They set him down in mock state on an ant hill and twisted grass about his head, and pretended to pay court to him on his knees, saying, O king without a kingdom, and prince without a people, we hope your gracious majesty is very well and happy. They did worse than this. They cut his head off, and handed it on a pole to the queen, who laughed with delight when she saw it. You recollect, they're walking so religiously and comfortably to St. Paul's, and had it fixed with a paper crown upon its head on the walls of York. The Earl of Salisbury lost his head too, and the Duke of York's second son, a handsome boy who was flying with his tutor over Wakefield Bridge, 
was stabbed in the heart by a murderous lord, Lord Clifford by name, whose father had been killed by the White Roses in the fight at St Albans. There was an awful sacrifice of life in this battle, for no quarter was given, and the Queen was wild for revenge. When men unnaturally fight against their own countrymen, they're always observed to be more unnaturally cruel and filled with rage than they are against any other enemy. But Lord Clifford had stabbed the second son of the Duke of York, not the first. The eldest son, Edward Earl of March, was at Gloucester and vowing revenge for the death of his father, his brother and their faithful friends, he began to march against the Queen. He had to turn and fight a great body of Welsh and Irish first, who worried his advance. There, he defeated in a great battle at Mortimer's Cross near Hereford, where he beheaded a number of the Red Roses taken in battle in retaliation for the beheading of the White Roses at Wakefield. The Queen had the next turn of beheading. Having moved towards London and falling in between St Albans and Barnet with the Earl of Warwick and the Duke of Norfolk, White Roses both, who were there with an army to pose her and had got the King with them, she defeated them with great loss and struck off the heads of two prisoners of note who were in the king's tent with him, and to whom the king had promised his protection. Her triumph, however, was very short. She had no treasure, and her army subsisted by plunder. This caused them to be hated and dreaded by the people, and particularly by the London people who were wealthy. As soon as the Londoners heard that Edward, Earl of March, united with the Earl of Warwick, was advancing towards the city, they refused to send the Queen supplies and made a great rejoicing. The Queen and her men retreated with all speed, and Edward and Warwick came on, greeted with loud acclamations on every side. The courage, beauty and virtues of young Edward could not be sufficiently praised by the whole people. He rode into London like a conqueror and met with an enthusiastic welcome. A few days afterwards, Lord Falconbridge and the Bishop of Exeter assembled citizens in St John's Field, Clerkenwell, and asked them if they would have Henry of Lancaster for their king. To this they all rode, no, 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 and King Edward, King Edward. Then, said those noblemen, would they love and serve young Edward? To this they all cried, yes, yes, and threw up their caps and clapped their hands and cheered tremendously. Therefore, it was declared that by joining the Queen and not protecting those prisoners of note, Henry of Lancaster had forfeited the crown and Edward of York was proclaimed King. He made a great speech to the applauding people at Westminster 
and sat down as sovereign of England on that throne, on the golden covering of which his father, worthy of a better fate than the bloody axe which cut the head of so many lives in England through so many years, had laid his hand. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed it, please comment and please like it and subscribe. Please do let me know if there are certain tales from whichever part of the world you might be in that you would like me to read. Thank you.